friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we have an enlightening show for you today. We will be joined by Bishop Donald Hying of Madison, Wisconsin. He's out with a new book called Love Never Fails. He also has some thoughts on the recent division we keep seeing between our shepherds on Catholic politicians and communion. But first, given the gravity and despair we are seeing striking at the heart of the Middle East right now, we turn to our dear friend, Father Benedict Keeley, who has a fresh perspective on this dire situation. Given his tremendous work helping those most pers- Executed for their faith in the birthplace of Christianity with Nazarene.org. Welcome to Conversations with Consequences, Father Ben. Thank you, Gracie. Always good to be with you again. It's great to connect with you across the, the big ocean. We don't get to see each other very much now with the pandemic. Well, please God, and I really mean please God, that's going to change soon. We're, we're praying hard and things are beginning to open up a little bit, certainly in the United States. So I'm praying that I'll be back in the USA very soon. Please God, maybe next month. Well, you must come to Florida and experience life in free Florida, as we like to call it here, <laughs> where things are pleasant and people can go maskless. And it's it's such a it's such a wonderful feeling to return to real life pre-pandemic times. I'm looking times. forward to it, Gracie. I'm looking forward to it very much. Yeah, you in England, you've been rather put upon by the authorities on, on the lockdowns, right? It's been very extended. It's been hard. I think the last time I was on your show, I was describing it. And yes, I mean, for example, even still, although we're allowed to go to mass, um, we're still not allowed to sing. Can you imagine that? We can have a small group singing, like a choir, a very small choir. Actually, they even have a number, six people. But um, the congregation can't sing. So can you imagine Easter? We had Easter without being able to sing ourselves. And we have no idea when this is going to change still. So it's, it's really very peculiar and very difficult. And we're all praying very hard that this changes soon. I also feel that it's important, and maybe you can speak to this as a priest, as a pastor of souls, a curer of souls, that people have been uh, for a very long time avoiding risk and in a way that's very intense. And it's creating, I think, in a lot of people, lots of anxiety, lots of inability to break out of, of certain molds of behavior. It's sort of freezing us in place. Are you seeing that in the in the people that you oh, counsel and you talk to? A hundred percent. It's, uh, I've said before that if you, in history, when history looks at this time, first they'll say this has been the greatest propaganda experience in, in probably since wartime because the government, and they actually admitted it, we've had a report just produced in England that the government advisors admitted that they were deliberately scaring people. They actually had a strategy to scare people and they have succeeded. People, even who've had two vaccinations now, both doses, are still scared. They're, they're, they're talking now about something called COVID re-entry syndrome. Oh, I hadn't heard. Who, That's a great well, term. That's a great term. And I, I'm, I know a lot of people who are suffering with this. I know. And it's a sign of 
I don't want to be cruel and say mental instability, but there's something wrong. The church, I fear, and I don't want to be too critical, but I fear the church has been rather risk averse as well. We, obviously, you're a doctor, so I mean, we all know the sensible things that had to be done. But we've had 14 months, really, since a year ago last March, and we've heard very little of the gospel being preached, I've, certainly in England, but I think in America as well. We haven't heard much about the preaching of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've heard an awful lot about cleaning and wiping pews <laughs> and social distancing. Um, and so I think this is a, at some point, the church will have to really be repentant in, in its failure to proclaim the gospel during this time, because funnily enough, it's been some atheists. I've seen articles written by atheists or agnostics who've really been calling on the church to do this work. They've, they've been wanting to hear the church and we've been very silent. I think that silence is, has been very damaging. I think in our liberal societies, the church the church has so many battles that, that they're fighting for religious liberty, for the freedom to care for people without violating our own um, ideas of right and wrong. We're fighting on so many fronts to preserve the religious, our religious traditions in the face of, of the constant onslaught of the culture that I feel like the church in this case said you know let's let's be good guys and and follow along and and not ruffle feathers and and be the the most compliant players in this in this pandemic situation and I, and I think that comes from a good place they don't they want to make sure that the church is always the one that that serves whatever they can serve without murmur and complaint that that's the way the church should serve the the people but but I agree with you that that can go on too long and and that we maybe have given up some of the freedom that we need to preach the gospel and, and the urgency with which we have to preach it. And we've Absolutely. given that up in order to conform. I couldn't say it better myself, Gracie. No, I agree with you 100%. And uh, rightly, yes, exactly. We, 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 we don't talk about doing stupid things, about putting people in danger. But the, uh, as I say, I think that what worries me most has been the silence that I personally think the church, certainly in England, is going to be the last place that actually gives up some of these things. Everywhere else may end up maskless and taking away all the social distancing, but I, I have a horrible feeling the church will be the very last place, probably because of fear, as you said, that, um, but I think it has to be challenged now. We've got to be very sensible, treat people as adults. I mean, I remember when we opened up in July, because we were open from about July to the next lockdown was, I think, in November or something. But masses were continued. But the parish priest where I help out, he basically spoke to the people and said, look, these are the rules. You're all grown ups. You're all adults. Mm -hmm. I'm going to treat you as adults. And perhaps that might have been more effective because we, we've been treated not just like children. We've been treated like sheep. Yes. Sheep without, <laughs> a, sheep without a shepherd sometimes. <laughs> yes. To use a gospel image. So what worries me, Father, is I know a lot of people who, who still haven't been back to mass who've been missing out on all the, on their sacrament, on the Eucharist, uh, people that were daily mass goers even. And I worry about how this is affecting their souls, their connection with God, you know, and we build these connections with God through a life. We try to be contemplatives in the midst of the world. And we build these, these this connection with God, with, with our prayer and our, and our frequenting of the sacraments. And then with this pandemic, so much of this connection that we have built over so many years is being lost. I feel very badly for, for people who, who, even though they may be vaccinated, are still feeling so afraid with COVID reentry syndrome that they're not able to reconnect again. Because the grace of the sacraments is something yes. that we cannot underestimate. I mean, we can't talk too much about the grace of the sacraments and how they allow our hearts to open to God, to God's presence. Well, exactly. 
this is what we would expect, and your listeners would expect this from a from a Catholic program, from a Catholic station like EWTN. So I, I would say there is a profoundly spiritual component to this. The pandemic, the, the closure of the church began in England on the very day, the very weekend that England was being rededicated as, as the Dowry of Mary, the ancient medieval mm. title. The doors were closed that weekend. Now, to me, that tells you something very profound. The doors slammed shut. And so people staying away from the sacraments, not going to confession now for 14 months. You're right, many people who were very, what we might call religious or very devout, there's been that break. And many people seem on the surface to be just fine with that. But that's that's the work of the devil. I have to be blunt, it's the work of the devil. He wants us away from the sacraments. He wants to sow this confusion. He wants despair. And we're hearing all these kind of cases now of young people having terrible anxiety, uh, all these other problems that have come. People need to be back in church in front of the Blessed Sacrament, receiving communion. And it's interesting because the thing that most relieves our anxieties, our our worldly anxieties, is that connection with God, with with a supernatural perspective, with the you know with that constant reminder that our lives here on earth are very short, are very tiny mm-hmm. tiny parts of our eternal lives, which are, of course will be eternal. And I think yes, I agree with you. It's the devil that that is removing our understanding of ourselves as eternal beings through this pandemic by taking us away from from our sacraments and from God. Our well, this is what I meant by saying that the church has 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 failed in many ways because that's the central proclamation that we 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 don't live forever on this earth we are preparing for eternity and although we want to do all that we can do for people's health etc um, part of being a christian is memento mori is uh, that mm-hmm. old uh, thing of saint benedict saint benedict to his said to his monastic followers keep death daily before you that's not grim you you see those pictures sometimes medieval pictures of a, of a saint holding a skull right. today people react with a look of horror oh, how grim how miserable the reality is these people are the most joyous people on earth but the skull was a reminder this world will come to an end you're preparing for eternal life and that's the message that needed to be preached and we didn't we didn't hear it and i feel i feel very bad for about that and, and because of that. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm talking to my good friend, Father Benedict Keeley, who is in England, and he is the head and founder of Nazarene.org. It's such a beautiful charity and such an important thing for us Christians in the West to keep always in mind, which is our brothers and sisters in, in the land where Christianity was born. Well, thank Thank you, Grace, and I'm always grateful to your, to you, and and to the program for having me on. And if the listeners don't know what I, what I do now, then they haven't been listening. But I'll tell them just in case. They've <laughs> yes, forgotten. please do. But yes, Nazarene.org. We we basically have two aims. We're very small, small as beautiful, very small charity, helping persecuted Christians, mainly in the Middle East. At the now we have uh, what we be mini microfinance small businesses to keep Christians in their homes in Iraq, 
Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon now, three countries, and we're hoping soon to be in Egypt. And then my work as a priest is to preach, to speak, to talk, to write, doing what I'm doing with you now to remind our Christians here in the West how lucky we are and how lucky we are to be free, but also to not forget our brethren in, in, in persecuted lands. And it's not just the Middle East. We're going to get into this, I know, but it's all over the world now. Christianity, Christ and his church is being persecuted. And we must first, as Catholics and Christians, pray for our brethren. But we've got to keep them in mind. They, they, they're not. Sometimes it is out of sight, out of mind when we think about the persecuted. I, I was thinking about the our, our brothers and sisters in the Middle East, of course, the last these last few weeks with the terrible uh, outbreak of hostilities between the Palestinian uh, authorities and Israel. I was wondering about our Christian brothers and sisters. I was worried about all sides of the equation, of course, because people are losing their lives. And I've been in, in Israel. I am so impressed by the way that life there is pulled out by force from this inhospitable desert and how beautifully it's done. What have you been thinking as you watch these uh, these terrible hostilities? Well, I don't have to tell you, Gracie, the moment we start talking about this subject, we're knee-deep, in fact, almost up to our chins and controversy and yes. there are so many opinions, there are so many people who are very angry on both sides. First and foremost, obviously we, 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 pr we pray for peace, we're trying for peace. There are many Arab Christians still in the Holy Land. It's very difficult because the state of Israel has the right to exist. That's that's something already just even saying that. You feel, you feel controversial? <laughs> Immediately, the moment you say that, because unfortunately we know there are many people, including, I hate to say it, some of our Christian brethren in the Middle East would not even agree with that statement. And so I think it's very important to say that first, that the state of Israel has the right to exist and to defend itself. The death, the loss of life is horrible. We had, and this also is controversial, but I think one has to speak the truth in love and it's not being political. The previous administration had tremendous success in the Middle East was bringing peace agreements all over the place. All over the place. <laughs> peace agreements. But suddenly we're back as though we're back 20-something years. Something wasn't working clearly and the previous administration did something. I think it, eventually when, when people are balanced, if they're ever balanced about this time, they'll say that foreign policy initiative of the last administration was very, very successful. So things are, things are bad. It's really, really difficult. But I think What's worrying me as well now is the growing anti-Semitism in the world. Yes. For example, seeing the attacks on Jewish people. This has got nothing to do with Israel. When when Jews are being attacked in New York and Los Angeles and London. In London, they had uh, demonstrations last weekend with people holding placards up saying Hitler was right. This is very disturbing. And a Christian must, with our heritage as well, because we know, unfortunately, the church many centuries ago was responsible for some of this stuff. And I think we have to speak out against that kind of anti-Semitism and any attacks on people for their for their faith, for their for their nationality, for their race. That has also, Father, made me very unhappy watching the anti-Semitic, the ugliness, the, the the very open way in which people express their hate because they feel that they have cover by being against the state of Israel, that that gives them cover for these acts of terrible hate against Jews, random Jews on the street. Yes. The, who are obviously yeah. not 
in any way connected to the conflict that is happening across the ocean. It's very sad to watch it. I worry about the way that some politicians are complicit in this mm-hmm. because of the way that they don't support this, the right of existence of Israel, for instance. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, a, I'm very sorry to see our civilization falling back into these old ways, which should never have existed in the first place. Well, I think, once again, from a spiritual and human perspective, the Holocaust, the Shoah, was so uniquely awful in human history. We know that communism killed more than the Nazis under both the Russians all over the world in China. But there was something uniquely awful about the Holocaust, that deliberate targeting of trying to destroy an entire race, that mechanical, monstrous thing. And so even if one gets attacked for it, that, that right, that defense of, of Israel's right to exist, I mean, they know, the Israeli know that there are people, nations, that want to wipe them off the face of the earth. They want to succeed where Hitler yes. seemingly failed. They want all Jews eradicated. In fact, they've been on, I've been seeing various things on social media saying, we don't even care if uh, Israel gives Palestine its right to exist, gives it uh, its freedom. We still want to kill all the Jews. It is very disturbing. And I think the church trying to be balanced, trying to be fair, trying to, 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 to see things all in charity. But the church must also speak and very strongly in condemning any form of anti-Semitism. We can't pretend we're going to find a solution at the moment. There has to be compromise, obviously, on both sides. And this is, this is so deep. This almost makes one despair. I know you ask, and sometimes I'm always asked, well, what can we do? And I say we can pray, which sounds like a cop-out, sounds like we're just trying to make the, the easy solution. But ultimately, that is praying and then action. We have to pray for peace, but we have to also speak the truth in love. Father, now switching gears rather violently, (laughs) because I want to ask you, I don't want to run out of time before we get around to talk about a couple things I wanted to ask you about. But one of them is, I know that you're always, you have your finger on the pulse of Christian persecution. I've been reading some really ugly headlines out of Nigeria, abductions of priests and seminarians. Can you tell us about that and what it all means? What's going on in Nigeria? This is something that is not being covered at all by the mainstream media. For example, I'm sure your listeners will be horrified to know that we're only in May of 2021. Already this year, more than 1,400, 1,400 Christians have been killed by jihadists in Nigeria. Priests are being regularly abducted, killed. Just last week, two, one priest was killed and others, they have not found him yet. This is going on constantly, a massive attack. More Christians are dying in Nigeria than ISIS killed in Iraq and Syria. This is a something that seems to be just Black Lives Matter we hear a lot about but we don't hear much about black Christian lives in, in Africa. There's a massive assault on Christians from jihadists, from Islamic extremists all across Africa. It's not just Nigeria. Nigeria seems to be the worst but all across Africa jihadists, ISIS under its many forms is, has not been defeated. ISIS has different names but they are an Al-Qaeda very, very ascendant all over Africa. And our Christian brothers and sisters are suffering greatly. And we're not 
We're not hearing anything about it. And who defends these these Christians and all these in, in Nigeria, for example? Who is who can well, be Nigeria their defense? It's meant to be a so-called democracy. Unfortunately, this present president in Nigeria and his entire cabinet, the Catholic bishops are very brave there. They've been challenging, for example, the, the, the president and the, the government, why there are so few Christians in the government, why he's letting, seems to be letting the slaughter continue. But there these very, very brave men, uh, the priests, the bishops, and of course the lay, the laity and the religious, uh, they seem, uh, I was talking to, to someone the other day who was just about to go to Nigeria to do some investigation about this slaughter. He was he's he stunned. He, he, he was just in, in a state of distress that there's no media coverage. You would think if, imagine if 1,400 people from some other group had been killed in the, and rightly we hear, for example, a lot about the, the Uyghurs in China. We hear about the, the Muslims in, in Burma and in Myanmar and Rohingyas and rightly, because all that kind of persecution is very wrong. But we're not hearing this massive slaughter of Christians in Nigeria. Do you think we don't hear about it because it's happening in Africa and, well, that's how it goes in Africa? People just slaughter each other periodically? Or is it because they are Christians, it's uh, Muslims attacking Christians and we rather, the, the press would rather not go there? Well, I think it's probably quite a bit of both. I think the first is true. People get that, what they call sort of compassion fatigue and they've heard so long that how bad things are in Africa. But for example, for your listeners, so many parishes now in the United States are served, as you know, by African priests. That's right. These great priests, and they're very, they're very good men. They're very humble men, and they're very quiet men. For example, one of the priests I knew in Vermont, I didn't know until I began to really question him. He'd lost one of his own fellow priests from his seminary, been murdered, martyred, martyred is the word. And another African priest I was talking to, a Nigerian, was telling me, I said, why don't you speak to your people? Speak to the people. I imagine if all of them in the parish spoke in the United States about what's going on in their own country. It might wake up some people. But yes, as you said, the other thing is, for example, I've heard reports that the attacks by the what are called the Fulani herdsmen, these are these are Muslim farmers who are driving Christians off their land and killing thousands of them. That's been described by some people, for example, some people from the EU as because of climate change. Climate change. Yeah, it's climate change that's causing them to kill Christians. It's always it's, been miserably hot there, hasn't it? This, this, is, this <laughs> is just, it's... This is when you realize something insane is going on. Oh, well, there's a lot of insanity out there, Father. I feel like the, the, the devil is rewriting our language so that we can never quite understand what anyone's saying or speak the truth clearly to each other. <laughs> well, his job is to confuse and to deceive and to uh, lay, cause all kinds of confusion. But uh, I think it's important for the listeners to to really question what's going on. And I always say when you, when you ask me on the show, voters have power. Power. It's mm -hmm. up to our listeners to speak to senators, representatives, etc. What's going on? Why are we not hearing about Nigeria? For example, people say, what can we do? One of the things we can do is withhold aid. When a government's failing to give civil rights to certain groups in society and failing to defend them, then we don't give them aid, which is why China is such an issue. Well, and in the case of Africa, I think the aid tends to go into people's private Swiss bank accounts. Isn't that how it goes? <laughs> Quite often, unfortunately, but but it's an important thing when when a government like the United States or, or, or Great Britain gives a very large amount of aid to a country, to 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 demand. I mean, there's this whole debate, as you know, at the moment about any kind of trading with China. Yes, of course. Uh, 
and it's all that's all often swept under the carpet or let's not talk about human rights let's just get on with making money mm-hmm. yeah there's a lot of incentive to, to keep up commerce with China which makes such a huge impact economically right with all our big companies especially um, uh, but what but about Christians in China they are suffering they are suffering persecution just like the Muslim population China and it's important also when we speak about China we're not talking about the Chinese people we're talking about the Communist Party of China the of CCP course. which is an evil regime and they are trying to destroy they're trying to control every aspect of life it's the most surveilled state in the world as we know now it's it's quite terrifying and so just recently in the last couple of weeks we heard about a seminar where the authorities raided the seminary, they arrested the bishop, they arrested several of the priests, the seminarians. And this has all happened, Gracie, unfortunately, as we know, during this so-called Vatican-China deal, where the Vatican made a deal with, with the Communist Party of China. I must again repeat that, a deal with the Communist Party of China about the appointment of bishops, etc. And the idea was this would somehow help the church in China the very opposite has happened. The persecution has increased. And we hear from the people like the great Cardinal Zen. I mean, there's a hero if ever mm-hmm. we want to find a hero today in the church. Cardinal Zen, this this very old cardinal from Hong Kong, who's been speaking out consistently in a spirit of loyalty to the Holy Father, to the Pope, but also telling the truth. This Vatican-China deal is demonic. You're dealing with the devil. You're dealing with, with, you're dealing with the Communist Party of China and Christians, Catholics, are being arrested. Their churches are being closed. Um, and maybe demonic was a, <laughs> That's a strong, strong word. word. But I do. I, 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 Cardinal Zen has, has, has been so strong in his condemnation of this deal. Um, and so I think it's important, once again, to, to remember that this, this country, this communist country, is, is actively persecuting Christians in just the same way as it did Russia did or the Iron Curtain countries did. Well, and also to assess with clear eyes what has happened since the deal was signed, right? Because uh, we have to assume in charity that it was signed because the Vatican was hoping that this would improve the the lot of Catholics in China and, and help them to be able to worship freely. I think it needs to be reassessed in light of of what you say, that things have in fact gotten worse for the, for the Catholics on the street. That's factual. I mean, that's not a that's not a polemical point. That's that is factual that that things have got worse. And why Cardinal Zen and others, Lord David Alton, who's known to you, Gracie, mm-hmm. but also is known to one of the great champions of religious liberty here in England and all over the world. Lord Alton spoke actually recently on Raymond Arroyo's show on EWTN and, and spoke very very strongly against this Vatican China deal. And he's a devout believing Catholic. Yes. But it's bad. It's a very, very bad deal. When you make a deal with communists, I don't think usually the church comes out well. History will tell you that. My own family history is all about deals gone bad with communists. And I'm surrounded by other people from Latin America who have, yeah, are also have course. constantly been experiencing the, the horror of communism and socialism and its lack of respect for our religious liberty, our conscience rights. So, Father, that's sort of a sad note to end on, but we have to end because our time is up. And I want to thank you for being on the show and, and having such wonderful, interesting conversation always for us on so many different topics. And please remind our listeners how they can learn more about your organization. Thank you, Grace. They can go to the website, nazarian.org. I always spell it because it's important. There's an S and not a Z. N-A-S-A-R-E-A-N.org. And please, listeners, uh, pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. 
Thank you, Father. Thank you, Gracie. Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we are thrilled to have Bishop Donald Hying of Madison, Wisconsin. He's out with a new book called Love Never Fails. He has a great message for our time and culture today. He also has some thoughts on the recent division we keep seeing between our shepherds on Catholic politicians and communion. Welcome to the show, Bishop Hying. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Oh, you know, I love uh, the title of your new book, Love Never Fails, Living the Catholic Faith in Our Daily Lives. I know as a Catholic that that is, it's hard. It's hard to live as a Catholic in our daily lives and integrate all of the, the way we're supposed to be contemplatives in the world, the way we're supposed to follow the teachings of our faith in our very busy lives. And is, are those the ideas that your book addresses? Yeah, really, the book is a compilation of newspaper kind that I've written over the years. A good friend of mine read some of the columns, said this is publishable in his estimation. He sent them off to Ignatius Press and told me, and I didn't think any more of it. And then six months later, I got a letter saying your manuscript's been accepted. And I was wondering what manuscript. <laughs> so the book is really that. It's um, kind of just practical reflections on different aspects of the Catholic faith with an emphasis on you know, just how do we understand the basic teachings of the church and how do we enter into a deeper relationship with Jesus and live this out in the daily practicality messiness of, you know, our existence. I found one of the hardest parts of, of implementing sort of a Catholic life and in, in the day-to-day is finding that time and that inclination to contemplation and to the deeper spiritual realities that we should be contemplating every day of our lives. Oh, that's right. And there's uh, little chapters in my book on prayer. You know, how do we feed our soul in a culture that is so distracted, so busy, and in many ways, you know, as I I think Matthew Kelly would say a crisis of prayerlessness. So we really need to be um, focused and dedicated to prayer. And I reflect often in my own spiritual life on the need to live in the present moment. And that's why one of my favorite books is Abandonment to Divine Providence by Jean-Pierre Cassad, because he speaks about the sacrament of the present moment, you know, that God makes his presence and his will known in the immediacy of where we're at and what we're doing right now. And I think um, prayer really disciplines us to be in the present moment with God. And maybe that's one reason why prayer is so difficult for us, because we're constantly being pulled into the past or the future. We can be so distracted that we just kind of miss out on life because we're always somewhere else. There's quite a bit of uh, development of those themes in the book. When I pray, I spend a lot of time just chasing my own brain down. My attention Mm -hmm. runs away from me and, and mostly into things that I have to do and how am I going to mm-hmm. arrange my life so that these things get done? It's a terrible thing to have to keep chasing your brain like a rabbit uh, run right. <laughs> in a field. Right. But I, th- I think I must not be alone in this. Yeah, no, not at all. And I find when I go on a retreat, you know, it really takes probably 48 hours just to work some of the craziness out of my system to mm-hmm. the point where I can actually just sit still and be present to the Lord and let Him love me. You know, uh, an essential ingredient of the spiritual life 
is daily prayer whether that's you know 15 minutes in the morning before everybody wakes up where you're just reading the scriptures or maybe one of those daily reflection books or it's finding time you know at the lunch hour to pray the rosary or the divine office or it's finding time in the evening we all need some sacred place and time to be with god and for many people that may seem impossible so i always say to people if you're not praying at all just start with five minutes a day don't try to commit to an hour a day because you know that's not realistic in terms of jump starting it from zero to 60 but start with five minutes start by reading mark's gospel read even one sentence and reflect on it for a few minutes and offer a prayer to god start small start simple and let that grow in your life the secret, I think, is to be dedicated to it. And, you know, I think we, we all fail and fall in that, but the importance is the perseverance. And that makes sense to me because uh, trying to to jumpstart a, a very ambitious program is usually a guarantee of failure in oh, things right. like prayer. Yeah, prayer or exercise or anything, right? Oh, it's yes, just, of course. Exercise, yeah, too. Just, just to start gradually. Another theme of the book is just you know, God's love for us. And in the first chapter, I explore the question, is it harder to love God or to be loved by God? And I think our first natural response would be, well, it's harder to love God because we think of all the effort that goes into you know a life of holiness. But the longer I've lived, the more I realize I think it's harder to be loved by God because to let God love us is to surrender, to accept that God finds us lovable and that demands that I find myself to be lovable as well. And I think oftentimes we're our own worst enemies. You know, we're so, we'd be so hard on ourselves and not that we shouldn't be honest with our own sin and weakness, but not to the point where we fail to trust in God's mercy. You, know, you see in the lives of the saints, oftentimes this, this explosion moment when you know, something triggered their radical life-changing experience of God's love for them. And it was a moment of conversion where they never really looked back but it really propelled them into a life of sanctity. So I think that's for us as well, not just the canonized saints. And do you think our inability to know ourselves, to be loved by God, comes from sort of a disdain for ourselves or a thought that we we can't measure up? I think so. You know, I mean, I think you know, St. Teresa of Avila in the interior castle would say that, you know, when we find our deepest self, we also find God. God dwells within us through the power of sanctifying grace. And that's really at the essence and heart of our faith. I'm always struck in John 14 where Jesus says you know he who loves me and keeps my commandments the father will love him and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him so it's that divine indwelling of God that is really the center of our salvation our relationship with the, the blessed Trinity within us but I think often we we fail to see that because we, we see our weaknesses we know our bad thoughts we know our temptations and sins in a way that no one else does so so there's a burden in being there's a burden in being myself my whole life, right? But I think the freedom comes when we realize that you know, we're precisely the person that God loves. You know, God created us. Our life is not an accident. We're not here in some random collision of circumstance. So I think often, you know, maybe the the greater sin of most people is not that they oversell themselves, it's that they sell themselves too short and don't realize you know, the, the grandeur of God and His great love for them as children. 
children. And it occurs to me that if we are, we, if we consider God's mercy properly, the way that He loves us despite our faults and and forgives our faults and understands our faults, we have to consider that He takes our our situation into account. The, the, the culture, you know, the culture that we're simmering in that that gets into our bones, even as we think that we're rejecting it, we're still swimming in it. So it's very hard for us to reject it utterly or reject the things that we know are wrong. Do you think that that's something that that we need to consider when we think about God's mercy? Absolutely. I'm consoled by the passage in Hebrews where it says that God, in Jesus, God has experienced every aspect of being human, you know, except for sin itself. So he can sympathize with our faults and weaknesses because he himself was beset by weakness. Mm. Yeah, that's in the letter to the Hebrews. So that that sense of you know, in the incarnation, especially in the cross, you know, God Himself embraces everything within us that's weak and dead, and can fully understand. You know, think of Jesus' agony in the garden. Think of Him weeping at the death of Lazarus. Mm-hmm. Think of those moments when He really could intensely feel the experiences of those around Him. That we should draw a great consolation from the humanity of Christ. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Bishop Donald Hying of Madison, Wisconsin, about all sorts of things, mostly his book, Love Never Fails, Living the Catholic Faith in Our Daily Lives. Talking about the modern culture, one of the things that many of us experience, sometimes we do it ourselves, sometimes we're scandalized by people around us, sometimes by politicians, is that kind of complicity with a culture that has accepted many things that are completely inimical to our faith. For instance, abortion, which which um, contradicts the dignity of every human life. We are in a very difficult spot right now. What do you think about that as, as sort of the big picture of our culture? Yeah, I think, you know, we are in a very difficult moment where, you know, when you look at the, the mixture of relativism, materialism, secularism, you know, we, we swim in that ocean whether we realize it or not. And oftentimes it's just presupposed or just assumed because that's all we know. Mm-hmm. But I think the clarity of Catholicism lies in the fact that you know God's revelation is the truth, that the truth is not malleable. You know, we don't make up the truth. That the truth of the human person is received as a gift from God who created us, that we don't make up our humanity. And I think so much of the crisis we find ourselves in today is because we've essentially taken God out of the center. And when you take God out of the center, then you're left with having to create your own truth, you know, create your own life. You know, if, if we don't let God be God, then we're condemned to be our own God. Mm-hmm. And that means that means I always have to be right. I always have to be in control. I always have to be in charge. And then it becomes about power and how exhausting that is. So to let God be God, to let Jesus be Savior for me, frees me to, you know, admit I'm a mess. I'm a sinner. I'm in need of a Savior. And there's such liberation in that surrender. You know, so that's why you know, we need to be convicted of our sin and weakness, not so that we feel bad, but so that we can turn our lives over to the Lord. So it seems to me that the only group of people that Jesus was really impatient with or unable to work with were what I would call the religiously self-sufficient. You know, those who thought they had it all put together and that they didn't need him, they didn't need a savior. Mm-hmm. You know, their lack of faith, their lack of vulnerability, in a sense, prevented him from doing miracles of healing. So so I think it comes down to that paradox of surrendering to God, surrendering to the truth, realizing our weakness, but ultimately combining love and truth. So I think that's what our culture needs. So I always 
always say, you know, truth without love becomes harsh, judgmental, rigid. Love without truth becomes sentimental, vacuous, empty. Put the two together, you have the firepower of the gospel. You have Jesus preaching. You know, he always spoke the truth, even some very difficult truths, but always did it because he loved the person he was speaking with. So when we love each other, we tell each other the truth, but we always tell the truth in love um, for the sake of the good of the other person. I find uh, that these days, I, I, I think that what we're experiencing is an excess of love without truth. We're, we're bathing in this kind of sentimentalism yeah. where we right. want to, everybody needs to feel good about everything mm -hmm. and nobody's feelings can get hurt. But in the meantime, you know, real giant injustices are being perpetrated mm -hmm. right in our backyards, right in front of us, right in front of our noses and, and our... Right. Our Catholic politicians, unfortunately, are knee-deep in this and, and making things harder and harder to, uh, for regular Catholics to discern and to understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say love, if, if there is a love that's not rooted in the truth, then it's not fully love. Right. Mm -hmm. It is a sentimentalism. And I think if if love becomes disconnected from truth, then religion kind of becomes psychotherapy. You know, it's it's my way to feel good about myself. And we should feel good about ourselves, you know, in the light of the fact that God created us. He has saved us. He loves us. He forgives us in the sacraments. We're joined to him. So we should feel good about ourselves, but not in a, you know, not in a psychotherapeutic sense. And that's not religion's role. I mean, there are people that need psychotherapy, obviously, that can be very healing, but it needs to be rooted in, in love and truth. So if I'm sinful or if I'm embracing sinful things, I shouldn't feel good about that. You know, Christ loved people as they were, but he always moved them in the direction of conversion. You know, so his acceptance of them gave them the freedom to convert and to change. Bishop Hying, what is your opinion, and maybe maybe you don't want to share it with me and with our listeners, what is your opinion on this issue of Catholic politicians and the scandal they create? And then, of course, the difficulty they present for their bishops of their diocese. Yeah, I think, you know, we need to do everything we can to lead a Catholic who's involved in the political life of our nation or our local community as a leader. We need to do everything we can to help form their conscience. Because mm -hmm. I think oftentimes people are just not well formed in the faith and they honestly don't know things. So we need to do every attempt, make every attempt to, to form them, to catechize them, to lead them to a deeper experience of the Lord. I think we also need to be clear that the church teaches particular moral issues. And I'm thinking of abortion. I'm thinking of, you know, end of life issues, you know, all the things that we deal with today, definition and sanctity of marriage. But I think, you know, the bishops are right now discussing, you know, the idea of, you know, what's called Eucharistic coherence, you know, that one should not present oneself for communion if you're publicly, blatantly, and in a position of power advocating for a grave moral evil, you know, and I think, you know, obviously the example that comes to mind is abortion. So that, that's not out of some punitive sense of punishment or of isolating this person, but it's really trying to awaken their conscience to say there's an incoherence to say, yeah, I'm a devout practicing Catholic, but I embrace this radical pro-abortion policy. Yeah, I think one can see the inconsistency of that. It's why in Italy, some bishops refuse 
have refused to celebrate the funerals of mafia kingpins. You know, that you can't just live your life in impunity and then think that somehow, you know, the church is simply going to to bless that or, or say nothing about it. So we need to continue to speak. We need to continue to seek to have private conversations with um, such politicians. You know, but, but I think we also need to, to say that it creates division. It creates confusion when someone defines themselves as a devout Catholic and yet, you know, wants to codify Roe v. Wade, for example. The other side defends this by saying that the same thing should be done for things like the death penalty and other things which don't seem as foundational to me, for instance, who uh, I'm very pro-life and very involved in the in the pro-life movement. Mm-hmm. What, what do you say to that? Yeah, I think there's, I think the point would be, are there other issues besides abortion where one should not present oneself for communion if if you're you know, embracing a particular position. I think the church's position on the death penalty, you know, is has been clear over the ages. You know, I, I think we have a consistent ethic of life. But, um, you know, for really until the recent change in the catechism, there was at least a, a theoretical allowance for the death penalty in cases where society could not be protected. But I think, you know, politicians that embrace anything that's contrary to church teaching you know, there's a responsibility of their pastors, whether that's their local pastor or the bishop, to speak to them. So whether it's death penalty, um, racism, abortion, euthanasia, I mean, I certainly would not limit it to abortion, you know, if that's the question. I think all those issues need to be addressed. Hmm. Yeah, so all the the entire fabric of social, of, of Catholic social teaching yeah, is just as right. important as uh, abortion, even though, of course, as a, as a crazy pro-lifer the <laughs> the thought of all those thousands of babies keeps me up at right. night well that's right i mean when you look at the the numbers you know abortion certainly has a gravity that the other issues don't also when you look at just the foundational fact that if life in the womb is not sacred nurtured received and welcomed then the other rights and the other issues just go away i mean if i don't have the right to be born nothing else matters because i'm not here right so i think that's why church really lifts up abortion as the the primary issue it's why the bishops called it the preeminent issue yeah preeminent doesn't mean the only issue but preeminent means it's a foundational issue because it's so so foundational at the very beginning of human life you know you mentioned racism and every time i hear people complaining about racism i think that one of the greatest racist things that are going on in in our country is the destruction of minority children in the womb Mm -hmm. and we can worry about how these children will be received by the world but only if they're received by the world in the first place Oh, that's right. And, and oftentimes, I think this is a verifiable fact. Planned Parenthood you know, places itself in minority communities because they know that those women and men are vulnerable and oftentimes you know, in need of help. Uh, you know, when it comes to a, a pregnancy or a crisis mm-hmm. pregnancy, right? Yeah, it's a terrible thing. And it does. It does put everything, puts the cart before the horse, I think, mm-hmm. to put it that way. But Bishop, right. I'm sorry to tell you we're out of time. It was very kind of you to join us. How can our listeners obtain your book, Love Never Fails, Living the Catholic Faith in Our Daily Lives? Yeah, so it's published by Ignatius Press. So if you go in, if you receive the Ignatius Press catalog, uh, it's in the spring edition. You can also go online to Ignatius Press and find it. Yeah, it, it should be purchasable, I, I believe, you know, um, via the Internet. Just thank you for promoting the book. It's an easy read. It's the type of book where you read a couple chapters and, 
you know, just kind of think about it. It's I wouldn't say it's theologically profound, but at the same time, hopefully it gives enough substance to, to feed our hungry hearts. Oh, well, wonderful, Bishop. And uh, thank you again for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. Great to be on your show. God bless. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us tomorrow on Trinity Sunday. Every Sunday is, in a very real way, dedicated to God. And therefore, every Sunday really is Trinity Sunday. But since the 1300s, the Church has celebrated on the Sunday immediately following Pentecost, a feast dedicated to the Holy Trinity, to help all of us focus more explicitly on who God is and His profound, mysterious depths, and therefore on who we're called to be in His image and likeness. We read an incredibly important paragraph in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The mystery of the Most Holy Trinity is the central mystery of Christian faith and life. It's the central mystery note, not just with regard to what we believe, but how we live. The Catechism goes on to say why. It is the mystery of God in himself. It's therefore the source of all the other mysteries of faith, the light that enlightens them. It's the most fundamental and essential teaching in the hierarchy of the truths of faith. In other words, the Catechism is telling us that the mystery of the Trinity enlightens the mystery of creation, the mystery of redemption, the mystery of sanctification. It illumines every page of sacred scripture. It helps us to understand the commandments. It sheds light on the four last things. It reveals what is at the root of all the sacraments and prayer. The Catechism concludes, The whole history of salvation is identical with the history of the way and the means by which the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit reveals himself to men and reconciles and unites with himself those who turn away from sin. Underneath the history of the world, underneath our own personal history from the moment of our conception in our mother's womb until now and beyond, has developed within this mystery of the Blessed Trinity. Therefore, it's crucial for us as human beings, not to mention believers, to pour ourselves into the mystery of the Trinity. This means not just pouring our minds, but our heart, soul, strength, and entire existence into this reality. Our Christian life is meant to be a Trinitarian life. So how do we live a Trinitarian life? We're certainly helped to live this reality liturgically. In the Gospel for this Sunday, Jesus tells us in his valedictory words immediately before his ascension, All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. To be baptized is to be submerged, to enter into, to be inundated in the name, not names, of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's to enter into his life. The Trinitarian indwelling begins right then. In the Mass, we are helped to enter more fully into communion with our Trinitarian God. We begin Mass in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We end it by receiving the blessing of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We do everything in Mass in dialogue between us and the Father through the person of Jesus in the light and with the help of the Holy Spirit. The priest greets all of us with St. Paul's words, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. The Mass assists us to enter into that grace, love, and communion of God. In the middle of the Mass, we loudly proclaim that we have grounded our lives in the mystery of the Trinity, uniting ourselves to the entire Church on earth and heaven and purgatory, as we say, I believe in one God. And then we explicitate it. The Father, the Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the Giver of life, proceeds from the Father and the Son, is, and with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified. At the end of the Eucharistic prayers, we lift up Christ's body and blood to the Father and offer ourselves together with Him. The priest, on behalf of Christ's whole mystical body, summarized the fundamental orientation of a Christian life. 
through Christ and with him and in him, O God, Almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours forever and ever. Moreover, all our personal prayer is meant to immerse us deeply in God's Trinitarian life. Prayer is possible because, as the future Pope Benedict once wrote, God is an eternal conversation. Prayer is ultimately not an exchange of ideas or words, but of persons. And the Blessed Trinity is a tri-personal dialogue. When the Son of God took on our human nature, humanity was mysteriously taken up into that conversation. The work of the Holy Spirit and baptism and the sacraments beyond brings you and me personally into that conversation. And the Holy Spirit does that work in Christ's mystical body, the Church. The upshot of that Trinitarian work is that by the Holy Spirit we can cry out together with Jesus, Abba, Father, with the confidence of much beloved sons and daughters. But liturgy and prayer should never be separated from life. For the Trinity to influence our entire life, it must influence all our actions. Catechism tells us that we're called to live as we pray, to put into practice what the triune God has come to reveal to us and make possible. So this Trinitarian life is emphasized and effectuated in the sacraments and is meant to overflow into our entire life. Jesus has come to reveal to us who God is, not only so that we can come to know him and experience his life and love throughout our daily existence into eternity, but so that we can also grow to know ourselves who have been created by him in his image and likeness. So what are the practical consequences of that in life? First, God is communion. And that's why Jesus prayed so hard on Holy Thursday that his disciples might be one. See, and the Father are one in the Holy Spirit. To live according to our having been made in the image of the Trinity is to live for communion with God and with others. We know that there are many who are sowers of division, who always contrast themselves to others they criticize, who put people into different camps, right, left, Republican, Democrat, rich, poor, young, old, black, white, male, female, Israeli, Palestinian, you name it. We Christians, if we live according to our Trinitarian image, must live differently, especially at a time in our culture in which divisions are so much out in the open. Christians, and as individuals and together, must become signs of communion and instruments of peace. That's what the church is supposed to do. That's why divisions in the church are so scandalous. Second, as St. John wrote in his first letter, God is love. The statement strongly implies that the one God somehow had to be a trinity of person. For God to be love, he could not have been solitary, because no one can love in a vacuum. In love, there's always one who loves, one who is loved, in the continent of love for each other. God the Father... God the Son and all eternity loved each other so much that their love inbreathed, generated, spirated a third person, the Holy Spirit. They exist in the eternal communion of persons in love in which the three persons exist in mutual self-giving that not only makes them united but makes them truly one, three persons in one God. We, having been made in God's image and likeness, are created in love and for love. We're called to exist in a communion of persons in love. We see this image reflected in the way he created man and woman to exist in a communion of persons in love so strong that their love for each other in marriage can actually generate a third person, similar to what we see in the Holy Trinity. St. John Paul II used to say that this is the deepest thing that can be said about the human person made in God's image. We're in God's image most, not by our reason and our capacity freely to choose, but by our nature and call to live in a loving communion of persons. This image of God as a loving communion is meant to be reflected in the family, in the church, and in society. And each of us on this Trinity Sunday is summoned to ask whether we really strive to live it, to live in a, a loving communion of persons in God's image and likeness. 
God who is love loved us so much that he wanted us to share in and spread his love. This Trinity Sunday is a chance for us once again to hear God calling us to live up to our dignity and to enter more deeply into the communion with him and with others that will bring true joy to our life in this world and eternal joy in the next. It's time for us to receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit, to dwell in it and to let that grace, love, and communion overflow at a time when our society desperately needs it. Today, we thank God for the gift and calling to that communion of love and ask him for all the help he knows we need so that we might truly be men and women in a communion of love and say by words and deeds in this world and forever, praise the Holy Trinity, undivided unity, holy God, almighty God, God immortal, be adored. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. Until next time, my friends, you go with our prayers. 